are robots coming for our jobs are they going to replace human beings no i tell you what will and that is your colleague who does embrace the technology your colleague or competitor who is embracing the tools and tech will will take your job hey everyone welcome back to another episode of bite size law with siddharth menon this is a podcast where i interview industry experts in the legal tech world The theme of today's episode is AI or artificial intelligence. And a part of that, I had the privilege of talking with a wonderful person named Liz Chase. Liz is someone who has successfully merged the worlds of law, design thinking and innovation. We go in depth to discuss the current state and future potential of AI in the legal realm. I believe in today's fast-paced and ever-evolving world, the legal profession stands at the threshold of a remarkable transformation. The introduction of artificial intelligence into the legal realm has brought about unprecedented possibilities and opportunities. But yet, AI is met with a lot of skepticism. And I believe as human beings, we need to be skeptical about certain things. especially talking about ai people generally paint a doomsday scenario in their minds when they think about the whole concept about artificial intelligence and in this episode we're going to break some of those myths i believe the responsible adoption of ai technologies has the potential to revolutionize the efficiency accessibility and fairness of the legal system i hope we embrace this transformative power while upholding the core values of the legal profession working together to shape a future where ai and human expertise coexist harmoniously without any further ado let's get to the conversation with liz chase hey liz welcome to bite size law how are you hey i'm so so excited to be here and chatting with you i'm great how are you I'm good, thank you. So Liz, I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite some time. I've seen the amazing posts that you po- post on LinkedIn about AI, machine learning and all that good stuff. So the theme of this podcast is to specifically go in depth into artificial intelligence and how AI can help the legal industry because you know when I interact with lawyers they're sort of reluctant to embrace technology but at the same time they do adopt the technology eventually they jump onto that bandwagon eventually but ai is a tricky concept because everyone thinks that you know ai is going to come for us the robots are going to replace people so on and so forth so who better than you to talk about artificial intelligence especially in the legal world so yeah well <laughs> i i can say that i've been uh... using generative ai now since december of last year and at least once a day and learning how to use it and i haven't been replaced yet um <laughs> in fact so i can say that with confidence and in fact what what tends to happen is that the more you do the more you can do the more you you do and you are able to sort of automate those routine aspects of your work and execute at a higher level and solve more complex problems i feel happy because it's really enabled me to unlock like my creativity and so now as it's really just about 
can I think of a use case? And then as soon as I think of a use case or an idea, I'm able to sort of use the tools and the technology uh, to execute that for me much faster than I was previously. Perfect. Yep. I'm pretty sure that we're going to dive deep into all these aspects. But before we do that, would you mind talking a bit about yourself, how your journey has been so that our listeners know who Liz Chase is? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. My name is Liz Chase, and I am a co-founder of a legal design consultancy called Law Designed, where we help law firms and legal departments optimize their service delivery so that they can be the most client-centric function. And we do that using legal design and sort of powering or unlocking the capabilities of people, process, and tech. And legal design really is a mindset or a method that focuses on a series of steps in order to, I guess, ensure that what you're doing puts your client at the center of the way you solve your problems. And technology relates to that as, as a way to help you get there faster and better. For sure. Thank you so much for that. So do you have a law background or were you? Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. Yes, that was the infomercial. Prior to that, I, I was a lawyer. So I um, was a lawyer for, oh, I think 15 years or a bit more. And I practiced in property law, most recently as a partner of a mid-sized law firm in Melbourne, Australia, where I'm from. Throughout my career, I was always kind of on the edge because before (laughs) my career as a lawyer, I had the opportunity to work in user experience research in for a startup during the dot-com era in uh-huh. when I lived in San Francisco. And so after that environment, coming into the legal environment was a bit of a shock, I must say, because so I did my law degree as a later lawyer. I was I finished when I was about 28. And coming into the legal environment after being a later lawyer, I mean, after working in tech, sorry, it was quite a shock because we were so fast-moving, creative, fluid and then all of a sudden I was in this environment where it was very hierarchical Mm -hmm. very conservative in some ways it felt a bit oppressive but even worse were the fact that we were doing things the long way and the hard way and it didn't really need to be like that I was quite shocked (laughs) so is that the reason why you decided to sort of focus on tech-enabled legal services? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I'm just the type of person that I I can see that there's, you know, ways to improve efficiencies and I'm always looking for those opportunities. And I also like to help myself not make mistakes because Mm -hmm. law requires a lot of attention to detail. And if you can, so rather than having to make sure that you input that thing, that piece of data correctly 10 times throughout a document, Mm -hmm. if you can just make sure you get it right once, then you can leverage technology to sort of do the rest for you. And that kind of helps with your accuracy as well. Oh, I 100% agree. It's uh, exactly sometimes practicing law can be challenging, especially when you look at documents and contracts, when you have to have that attention to detail. But however, if you can leverage technology to make your life a bit easier, why not leverage it, right? So- oh, absolutely. Because 
you know, what we're doing is complex and it requires like a high degree of critical thinking. Why waste our, you know, brain power on administrative things that tech can assist us with? You know, there's a significant mental load that goes into sort of making sure that there are no errors and that accuracy. And if we can allow tech to help us with that, which it's really good at doing, then we can move on to the more high value and also enjoyable aspects of our work. For sure. Yeah, exactly. So keeping the theme in mind for today's episode, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all that cool stuff. So Liz, right off the bat, let me ask you a question. Are robots coming for our jobs? Are they going to replace human beings? I know that you partly answered that question at the beginning, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I tell, you, I tell you what will, and that is your colleague who does embrace the technology. Hmm. Your colleague or competitor who is embracing the tools and tech will, will take your job. I'm going to use... The- embrace the tools and the tech. I'm going to use that whenever a person asks me if the robots are coming for us. (laughs) No, but the lawyer who does collaborate with robots will. It's quite simple. Yeah. So for all the listeners out here who do not know what AI is, I'm pretty sure they would have heard about the news about ChatGPT, OpenAI. They probably would have heard conversations about interviews of Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI. But for those Mm. people who do not understand what artificial intelligence is, would you mind providing, you know, the definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. I do not mind. Sorry for cutting you off there. What I can talk about is at a high level, because I'm not an AI expert or a machine learning expert. I'm a lawyer who has got into it a little bit. And so basically, AI or artificial intelligence refers to the simulation of intelligence by processes by machines, especially computer systems. And the processes include learning, reasoning, problem solving, perception and language understanding. And generative AI is a subset of AI. And Mm -hmm. that involves machines that can generate new content sort of using a predictive model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ChatGPT is a type of generative AI. There's other types of generative AI, for example, DALI or MidJourney that can generate visual output. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one that I, the type of generative AI that I think is most relevant to lawyers is a large language models. In other mm-hmm. words, the ones that can pr- produce text. Yep. And generative AI not only has generating capabilities it also has analyzing capabilities and predictive capabilities so you can use it in there's a whole range of different applications in Mm -hmm. the legal realm um, which are being explored and adopted as we speak I, i i believe that right now right now as you sid and i are talking there's probably you know a hundred startups sort of sitting in a room somewhere creating like a new technology right now and that will be happening you know every day for for a while because it's so exciting and it's yeah. so amazing what can be done and as there's a lot of specific legal tech tools that we can engage with and I think it's important for us to dive in mm-hmm. and know that this will help us do 
a better job for our clients and it'll allow us to flip our time. So instead of talk, like doing those things, I was surprised, let me just say, that after completing my law degree, that so much of my job was administrative. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was an overpaid, like, admin person in my role a lot mm-hmm. of the time. When I started off, I also had this feeling that I was like a glorified stenographer, <laughs> you know, when I started yeah. my law degree. Yeah. So yeah. I, I completely agree with what you felt back then. What the? What, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. And I, it was so, I guess, disappointing. And so here we are. We can now flip our time into the higher value tasks, but also it will free us in order to be more present for our clients and more available to them and to be more human-centered in the way that we deliver our services. So instead of previously being overwhelmed by tasks, Mm -hmm. you know, generative AI is amazing at tasks. It's not necessarily great at an entire function. it's really good at performing specific tasks when you instruct it correctly. That's mm-hmm. the key. And I do talk about prompt engineering a little bit. If you follow me on LinkedIn, I've created a ton of resources about that. And so generative AI is really great if you, in that sense, but it's not good in the entire function. But what it can do is get you started. It can easily perhaps get that, get your precedent letter done. I wouldn't mm-hmm. put, and, and I need to say right now, please do not put confidential client data or sensitive, you know, firm information into a publicly available open source platform like ChatGPT or Bing AI. That would be a breach of your duties to your client. You should not do that oh. because that's not private, it's not secure, that would be the same almost as publishing (laughs) your client's data to Facebook or something like that. So don't do that. But there's a bunch of other ways that you can use those publicly available tools to enhance your legal practice. And also there's a range of AI tools that have been specifically built for the legal realm that have been trained on legal data and do their best or promise that their platforms are confidential and secure. Now, I can't speak for any specific platform. You would need to do your own due diligence. But we, you know, I do have posts and I have spoken about the types of questions that you need to ask of your legal tech vendor, if that's what you choose to do, in order to ensure that Um, you do have that integrity and confidentiality and reliability of output is another concern that lawyers often have. For sure. Yeah. You uh, rightly, the, what you said was hundred percent accurate because with regards to data, especially as lawyers, you have that confidentiality piece that you need to keep in mind, especially the lawyer client privilege. And especially if you have information pertaining to a specific client, and if you put it on an open source AI kind of a platform, then that information is available to the public. So keeping that in mind, what other considerations should lawyers keep in mind while training an AI tool or while using an AI tool? Because the other day I was speaking to a lawyer or a legal operational specialist from the European region for 
the European region, GDPR regulation is a massive thing. Like, you know, you need to ensure that any tool that you interact with comply with the standards, what do you call, promulgated by the European Union. So do you have any thoughts about, you know, what kind of considerations lawyers should keep in mind while interacting with technology per se? Yeah, I, I actually think that the GDPR is a, is a great standard for privacy and data regulation, and we could almost apply it regardless of our jurisdiction, and it would keep us quite safe and, and ethical in the way that we're dealing with our clients' data. I think that there's a few distinctions to be made. So the first one is if you're using publicly available tools like BARD or Anthropology, Claude or ChatGPT, in that case, do not put anything in there that you would not publish mm-hmm. uh, to your law firm's website, quite simply. Yep. And so you could put your a great great use cases would could be anything that's generalized that could mm-hmm. apply to any matter. So you might say, I have I'm preparing for a trial. You know, the dispute is about consumer protection and the issues in dispute are ABC. Can you help me generate, you know, some arguments for and against? Could you help me predict, you know, what the, uh, you know, like the opposing counsel might come up with? And that's quite general. You're not really giving anything, getting, giving any information to the mm-hmm. model. Yep. Similarly, a, a, additional use cases are things like drafting your precedent suites. So if you wanted to set up your generic cost agreements and you wanted to maybe revamp them so that they were in plain language and more readily understood by different audiences, open source, publicly available, large language model would be perfect for that. Mm-hmm. Other ways that I've used it, like for law firm marketing. So I've got a really cool post, I think, sort of how to create client-centric content. Mm -hmm. And I I wrote that and it was like, so I am a family lawyer and I would like to, and my client's coming who is getting a divorce in circumstances where they have a family business. What are the things that they're most concerned about? And, you know, or generate an empathy map for this type of client. And so it pulls out all the information with the things that that particular client profile would mm-hmm. be worried about. So not just your generic family law client, but someone that's a bit more specific, then you can gen- use those insights and you can then say, well, okay, so now generate like 10 article topics that you mm-hmm. know I could write about that would appeal to that client. What is this client specifically worried about? And then you're actually speaking to your client, or you could even say like, could you generate a list of frequently asked questions that a client in this mm. situation, you know, might have? Oh. And that way you're helping, you're using, I guess, the tool to help as a thinking partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, a, that's another really good way to use it. So those are the generic publicly available tools and those are the safe way, yep. safe ways to use it. Then you will have your specific legal industry tools and there's, some, I mean, we would have seen a couple of days ago, Case Text was acquired by Thomson Reuters for $650 yep. million. We've got Copilot, 
LexisNexis, they've all got these amazing AI tools. Spellbook is another contracting platform. And then we've got really great research tools. I'm actually, I've actually got a couple that I know about that are in early stages that are just so, so good. I'm really excited about them. Uh -huh. okay. And in that case, if, if the tool is going to be interacting with your data, mm -hmm. I would get a privacy lawyer and expert um, mm -hmm. involved in the process. And I would also consult a technologist to help you understand the way this tool interacts with data and what and I would carefully review your service that your service level agreements with that company consider how the data is stored in the cloud as well mm -hmm. so if this company they might make representations to you about the way they deal with their data but you need to find out what about how they store their data and what their relationship is with the with their vendors so mm -hmm. in relation to the data as well so you need to go further then you would also probably want to go through a data anonymization process so even when you know so if you're going to be training a large language model or a tool on your data you might you want to clean it up and make and take out client details so say for example you might have precedents or other documents that you want it to learn from extract anything that relates to your clients and anything that's identifying. Mm -hmm. And that way the model, you know, learns from anonymized data. So data anonymization, privacy and security are really important. Mm. And getting the right people involved to help you assess the tech is also really important. If you're, you know, a, a smaller firm and you've got limited resources, you I, you can still interrogate your vendor appropriately and mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, and make sure that you review the warranties, you know, our lawyer, <laughs> do your due diligence. Don't, this is not, this is not the same as, you know, a typical kind of software that you might use in your personal life where you just click accept on the long terms and conditions, read them, evaluate them. Then you've got reliability of output. We would have seen <laughs> that case in the US if you haven't, you, if you just Google Amica, you'll know. Poor lawyer. I don't know if he was poor. Maybe like. I think not. I think I know what you're going to say. Is it about the person who filed a motion or filed a case using proceedings yes. that were repealed? <laughs> yeah. 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 So basically, he relied, and so he asked ChatGPT, you know, to file a motion, and you know, cite cases, and he didn't even check to the cases, and that's. <laughs> Kind of, it feels like a very lawyer 101 mistake. Like back in your days when you were practicing law, would you have ever submitted anything without actually reading the case itself? Exactly. Like so, if you even if even if the most ex esteemed subject matter expert referred to a legal case in a textbook, I wouldn't be relying on it unless I actually went and read the case. Absolutely, exactly, and that actually makes lawyers much more skeptical about AI because it's not the tool's problem. It's the problem that the lawyer did not do his due diligence. You, Like you rightly stated, once you look at a case law or a precedent that you need to submit to a judge who is an authority, you at least mm. read it and see if that case is relevant or at least 
in this scenario, see if that case has not been repealed or if it's something which is even relevant to his case. So that talks about the lawyer's practice, not the you know lack of efficiency in the tool. It doesn't matter. Like even back in the day when I was a junior lawyer, I used to prepare motions and you know case summaries for my senior lawyer. Whatever mm. precedents that I submitted to my senior lawyer, they you should they used to review it just to ensure if I've done my research correctly. So I mean, it goes yeah, both exactly. ways. Exactly, and not doing so is negligent. It's it's malpractice, and you have to. We have to, I guess, form your own view of a case. The tool get might get get you to the case, mm-hmm. in which, and in this case, it didn't. It, it hallucinated but the right tool will get you to the right case and okay. I've seen some that are just so good and they will help you get to the right case in the right area of law but it's still up to you to read the case and form your own view you might use the tool then to further interact with the case summarize it or you know help you extract principles I mean if you're really tired in fact I don't think this is too bad of an idea the irony is that some of these cases we, we try and teach law students. I also work in legal education. So we try and teach our students to speak, you know, plainly and clearly. And then the irony is a lot of these judgments are quite long-winded. Mm. So you could potentially ask, put the case into a, a generative AI tool and say, put into plain English for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> but then you'd still do the verification, right? Yeah. yeah. And make sure that... Uh, but it's it's an enabling tool. It's not a replacing tool. And that's, I think, the point. All of these tools are enabling. They're not replacing. And that's our skill. That's our value add is our judgment and our training mm-hmm. and our ability to understand and apply the law. I think what has happened to us as lawyers is that we have become so overwhelmed and so burdened, mm-hmm. you know, by the tasks, mm-hmm. the relentlessness of practice that mm-hmm. we have forgotten that it's actually our judgment and our critical reasoning and our legal thinking that that we are valued, that we are being valued for and being hired for. It's not actually the task. Correct. Absolutely. It's our expertise. Exactly. Yes. I always tell people, law is not black and white. There's a huge gray area. You cannot, mm. the black and white cannot be eliminated by technology or tools. That huge that huge gray area requires your intellect. That's what lawyers are there for, to dig in deep and find out solutions to technical, complex, you know, problems in life. So, but again, the black and white side of and, things can yeah, be eliminated. And to build by- bridges and to build gaps and to help clients, I guess, proactively engage with the law and to have better relationships and to be more strategic in the way they set up their supplier agreements. I mean, you would know all this from your CLM work. Yep. Um, which is we're veering off topic, I guess, from generative AI. But but that's what the potential of this technology is to get into the more interesting intellectual high value components of our work. Yep. So having said that, Liz, do you what are the potential use cases for AI in the legal world. For example, just to give you an example, especially in the CLM world, uh, contract Mm. review world, AI is generally used as sort of a feature to dig into certain clauses just to understand 
what the meaning of that class is. Because back in 2020, when we had the pandemic, lawyers were almost scampering to find the force majeure clause to see if the pandemic (laughs) would, (laughs) the definition of pandemic would fit the act of God terminology, right? So, but at the end of the day, in contracts as well, you have to understand the meaning of the specific provision by reading it. It's not plain. Sections are just a reference guide within contracts. So AI could help you sort of, you know, give you a summary of a specific kind of clause and tell you, okay, what you're looking for is present in this paragraph. Having that in mind, so what would you think would be the specific use cases that lawyers can, you know, engage or leverage AI for? I think the way you've described it is right. AI AI can get you there faster. Mm-hmm. It might help you identify. So it, I, I remember when I was a junior lawyer, some of the things that we had to do, for example, review tons of documents to find that clause, like manually. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about sitting in a room for days on end and going through like boxes and boxes of contracts to find a particular clause you know, that's related to a particular company and all their supplier agreements to see what they've agreed to with a particular, with all their different vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, AI would be the one that AI could now analyse all of that and put it into, you know, a spreadsheet or a report. And then that would help you identify where, but then it's up to you to actually go to that and then make, use your judgment to decide. But that just means that AI is your, I guess, paralegal junior lawyer law clerk <laughs> that finds the clause for you much quicker, much faster and more accurately because AI doesn't get tired the way that humans get tired. Yep. Like, you know, sometimes there were times when, well, there was a famous time when me and my, like, law graduate colleagues, we sat in a room for, like, 24 hours, you know, preparing discovery briefs. Now, I'm... That doesn't AI that that was tiring. And I, I don't know if at the end we were that great at what we were having to do. Because obviously when when you do that, you're a human. So you will get tired and make mistakes. Where but AI doesn't get tired and AI can do that, you know, for you. And the the purpose of that is to help you get there, but then use your judgment. So I I I kind of think of it like calculator, washing machine. It's just something that helps you do something that you used to have to do manually more accurately actually now and faster. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's about, it's, it's just a task um, completed by a computer with human-like precision or better, right, at the end of the day. Better than yeah, human-like precision, to be quite honest, because a lot of the things that you're asking the machine to do are things that require like accuracy and attention to detail and our minds wander like we're not meant to be like looking through black you know text and sort of black and white text in small font to that you know level of detail we're creative problem solvers that's what we are as people we're and let the machines do that boring stuff you know (laughs) and it can also you know there are some other things that can also leverage data and make connections because of the volume of data that it's able to get through, it can make connections and predictions that might not be readily apparent to us. Yep. But then it's up to us to interpret that and to see if it's true. 
Mm-hmm. And again, to use our judgment, it can help us with legal research. And then, you know, like what you said, contract analysis, identifying key clauses, assessing risk, it can give you that sort of predictive score, but there should always be what people call the human in the loop, or in our case, the lawyer in the loop or the expert in the loop, you know, the legal expert in the loop. We need to make sure that we're there and reviewing, you know, large volumes of documents, people use it in discovery and I think in certain jurisdictions, I certainly know that in the US, there's that technical duty of competence. And there's also that duty that if you can leverage technology to the advantage of your client, you absolutely must. Mm-hmm. Yep. hundred percent. Yep. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you a very controversial question. Are lawyers, oh. <laughs> are lawyers averse to technology? Like the reason why I ask you is because it's a segue to the main question which is the challenges of implementing AI, especially in the legal world. Do you think lawyers generally shy away from you know, embracing technology? Is that a misconception? It's not a misconception. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know about all lawyers, but I definitely think that there's a generation of lawyers for whom technology is a challenge or I think we get ingrained in our old way, in our ways of doing things. And so um, having to be busy doing the doing, Mm -hmm. we feel like we might not have time to think about how we might do it better Mm -hmm. because we're so overwhelmed. Being a lawyer is a very overwhelming thing. And it's so funny because if you took an hour, literally just one hour off what you were doing, to, to think about how you might start employing these tools and just do one thing and see if AI can help you with that one tiny little thing, you would find that you would be saving even more time to maybe help you learn a bit more. So that thing, that thinking that I don't have time to learn about that right now, um, I guess is a bit, is not really true when you think about it properly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that whole thing about, that, you know, the axe and the tree analogy, the story that I don't have time to sharpen my axe, but you if you don't have time not to sharpen your axe. And in this case, technology is your axe. I, I also think that lawyers are having a bit of an existential crisis at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, we are being threatened <laughs> <laughs> by this. We do feel threatened by this technology, you know, and we're like, and sort of this idea that, oh, this technology will replace us, 44% of our jobs, you know, of our role can be re- replaced or performed by generative AI might make lawyers feel resistant or defensive. I see that a lot, you know, yep. like, oh, no, no, no technology can do this as well as I can or, you know, yep. ultimately I'm important and I'm needed here. Yep. And the thing, I think that sort of misunderstanding the point the point is is that the that of course you're important and of course your judgment is really valuable but are you really needed you know to fill in that form are you really needed you know to spend hours searching through documents finding that clause you know can you leverage technology to help you get there faster even basic things like generating I don't know, like your admin kind of emails or that email management. Correct. You Correct. could leverage technology to help you and do that better. Yeah, absolutely. Because 
why not give these mundane administrative tasks to the technology and focus on much more strategic value generating tasks you know which which lawyers don't get a lot of time for these days because of the fact that they are overwhelmed with all these administrative tasks going through contracts chasing people for signatures oh my gosh process. i know yeah it's overwhelming it's overwhelming and that kind of project management function or that administrative function which has really nothing to do with our value mm-hmm. yep. if it did have something to do with our value we would have learned about it yep in so we talked about in the initial part of this podcast that uh, you know natural language processing or training systems with large corpuses of documents you know especially in the legal world are relevant so we also spoke about the advantages of implementing ai technology what would be what are the limitations of using ai in the legal world yes of course in the general world yes there are so many limitations such as spreading of misinformation and so on and so forth but what are the limitations especially in the legal world of using ai or maybe how can people ensure the language or the ai model is trained with the right corpuses of documents to ensure that you they don't there are no limitations here yeah that's the question isn't it because the fear the philosophy is garbage in garbage out so if you put rubbish into your system it will produce rubbish and that's you know that's quite that's the fact and that is because ai systems are really only as good as the data they are trained on and that's how we end up with biases hallucinations and you know sort of unreliable output mm-hmm. so number one is making sure that they're trained on high quality data but also you want to look at the way that you instruct the model because there's a lot of different like little tools like a really simple one when i'm engaging with chat gpt is i always say if i'm asking it a question i always say like if you don't know just say i don't know <laughs> it's called giving the model an out because mm-hmm. otherwise it then otherwise it sort of feels like it has to give me an answer and fabricate something because it generates yep. yep but you can just say if you cannot find a reliable answer tell me and it actually since i've been working with it for the past 6 months the guardrails have been improving and it's getting better and better and then specific legal technology tools that i've been interacting with there's one that i can think of specifically actually are are actually getting really good at sort of building those those safety mechanisms within their tech to ensure that you get that reliable output. So reliable output and not having these kind of hallucinations or untrue explanations that sound very yep. convincing mm-hmm. is a big thing. Mhm. But then also I think the other limitations are around like data privacy which we've touched on. Yep. So you have yep. to make sure that that's there. You need to consider, you know, any regulatory compliance specific to your practice and also not just your practice. but your client's world. So yeah. understanding AI from the perspective of the way you use it as a tool is important. But think too that a lot of your clients regardless of your area of law 
will be deploying it in their businesses too. So think about, you know, AI hiring tools. Think about, you know, if you're an employment lawyer, you've got a, a whole minefield. If you're an intellectual property lawyer, there's even more opportunities for you. So think about that. And then trusting and transparency. So we want to know the thinking behind the the tool. Now, because of the com the complexity of thought, mm -hmm. it's difficult to get to full transparency what, or what people call explainability. Mm -hmm. That problem hasn't really been solved. And AI is, you know, people talk about, oh, the black box of AI. We don't know how it's arrived. But you can validate or verify the integrity of the output in different ways. And this would happen under the hood. And what the tech, different types of technology, one way that different technologies do this is actually by getting different large language models to cross-check each other. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So you will have the model produce the output, one model, and then you get, get another model to produce an output and then, you know, and to verify like with what, with what comes out. So a lot has to do with the way the model's trained. And this is complex and mm -hmm. it's a little bit beyond my understanding, but I have sort of a basic yeah. view of how it works. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it gets a little too technical for lawyers. people who are lawyers. <laughs> and yeah. not, you know, without computer science degrees and um, not AI specialists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we also talk, we talked about some of the use cases of AI, especially in the contract world. So um, would AI fit into the e-discovery world as well to help 100%. lawyers? Yeah. Yeah. E-discovery yeah. e e is like the perfect place for it because there's such a huge volume of documents that need to be considered. Well, I mean, not always, but often. Yeah. And my sure. favorite um, one of my favorite and most interesting projects that I've seen where AI is being leveraged. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Sid, but there's a really interesting project out of Stanford called where they're using generative AI in um, oh my God, I, um, in I, consumer I, law. In oh, consumer, consumer law. law. I was going to yes, go on a different yes, tangent because there's a yes. similar study in Stanford or Harvard to bring back uh, using AI to bring back uh, Neanderthals. <laughs> I was going to go what? on a different tangent altogether. Oh my God, that's a totally different track. <laughs> wow, they're using AI to bring back Neanderthals. Yeah, I mean, that's like really very veering into black territory, territory right there. Exactly. And I think that, and I think that that's actually a point too that we can make is that. We are at a bit of a crossroads and I think lawyers have an important part to play here. Mm -hmm. If you consider some of like the sci-fi books, TV shows, they're not necessarily all wrong. And we can have, we do have that potential where we could either go on a dystopian journey with the way this technology is evolving mm -hmm. and it can be quite scary and bad yep. or it can be utopian and it can be towards you know a net human benefit and a better life in society mm -hmm. and it's incumbent upon us as lawyers to be an active voice yep. you know in this evolution of the technology and I think to guide our clients and and to have a say about whether or not things are responsible ethical yep and I, and so, yeah, I think that well, some uh, of the things that we've seen in Black Mirror can be true or cannot be true. But yeah, be true. 
for, could for, be eventually true if you know what I mean. <laughs> exactly. For me, I have like thirty years back. I didn't know what the terminology AI or what the entire concept of AI meant thirty years back because it was not widely used. But when I think of AI, I think about the Jetsons. Thirty years back, growing up as a '90s kid, I always thought that by 2022 you would have flying cars and all those cool stuff, right? But um, yeah, I had so uh, sort of a utopian vision when it comes to yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, yeah, flying cars and all that stuff would be so fun. But you know, it's really I used to watch a lot of TV when I was a kid, and one of the shows that I watched was Get Smart, and you'd. I don't know if you remember that. It was like that he had the shoe phone and we've progressed way beyond the shoe <laughs> phone because like we have these like cell phones that operate as computers mm-hmm. uh, and that's super advanced if you think about it. I mean, I grew up, I was a 90s young adult, so a little bit older than you, maybe by 10 years. <laughs> and I remember like my first cell phone was literally the size of my handbag oh, yeah. and um, and it, we, we could just make calls. That was it. And Whereas now we have, we're basically walking around with personal computers that are more powerful than the original personal computer in our pockets and that can do like so many things. So if we think about technology evolving that way, we can see that really the growth will be exponential. I think that we don't want to get into a false sense of security and convince ourselves that, oh, this change isn't going to be like all the other changes. It's not going to live up to the hype. This is way more than hype. For sure. And because of deep learning, the technology is learning at a rapid pace and is evolving exponentially. Mm -hmm. And that means that change will also be exponential. Mm -hmm. And we need to, A, engage and keep up and take and B, take care of ourselves. For sure. So how do you see the future of the legal practice? How are tomorrow's lawyers going to practice law? If you could sort of have a vision and predict how law practice is going to be like 20 years later, what are your thoughts about that? I think the lawyers will be a lot less stressed. They will be (laughs) happier. They won't be carrying so much of a load, which will enable them to be more present, more creative and more available to their clients Mm -hmm. uh, and more human-centred in the way that they practice. So even in a commercial or litigation sense, they'll be able to leverage their, I I guess, their negotiation abilities, their thinking abilities, their problem-solving abilities. All those minutiae tasks Mm-hmm. will hopefully be outsourced and automated to the mm-hmm. technology, enabling lawyers to really interact on a person-to-person level. Lawyers will not be replaced. It's just that we won't be burdened and encumbered by those things that actually drain us. Yep, exactly. So especially for law students right now, if you go to uh... If you look at the law school's curriculum, I recently, like five years back, I did my master's from mm. a university here in Toronto. We were mm. not taught or we were not given any information about technology. No subjects were taught mm. to us. It was just we had the typical old textbook style teaching where mm. we were talking about mm. transaction and everything. So for a law student who's graduating from law school, who is anxious about technology replacing 
them in the future like do you think that it's high time law schools i don't know about australia but at least in north america i know that you know law schools still follow the traditional you know substantive or subject matter style you know courses the kind of courses that they teach or the kind of subjects that they teach are substantive loaded with substantive data rather than mm. how, rather than teaching kids or law students to use technology to sort of automate or streamline some of their admin related tasks how how would you talk to a law student to ensure that <laughs> the person is not anxious about technology and how they can embrace technology for their own benefit that's a great question and i'll tell you why it's a great question number 1 i'm a mum to a law student so my daughter is a first year law student awesome so i'm talking to a law student daily <laughs> <laughs> And number two, I work in legal education. So in that postgraduate law space. So the advice I give to law students varies depending on the stage of their journey. So my daughter is a first year law student. Um, she, I, I think that it's critical for her to read the cases in full, learn how to summarise a case, learn how to extract the relevant principles and, and do things sort of the long way, kind of like when we were in primary school, we had to learn long division and multiplication before <laughs> we were allowed to use the calculator yep. because we, that's the thinking process that also builds our own neurological pathways and connections within our brain. And we don't want our muscle to become lazy. We want to build our muscle, right? Sure. But the valid ways for somebody at my daughter's stage to use generative AI, I feel like would be maybe she could submit her paper to a large language model along with the rubric one that she's created entirely independently on her own, by the way, but with the rubric and ask for feedback the same way that she would if, you know, the tutor was available to give her feedback. She could also maybe ask, like, upload her notes to the platform and um, maybe ask for some tutorial, like, like, let's revise this material, let's do some question and answering or, you know, help me prepare for a mock interview or a mock negotiation on a particular subject matter. Those are the perfect ways to use the tool at that stage. Mm -hmm. As you progress into sort of your second and third year of your legal degree, I think it is time to start engaging with the technology and the use cases. And the key, there's a few different skills. I think legal design, which is a problem-solving methodology which helps you uncover problems in the legal domain is the critical skill because mm -hmm. once you do that and you understand what the problem is for the client's perspective, what makes it hard for them and what the problem is that they're trying to solve and what the blockers are for them, then you can identify the use cases like that for the technology from a client perspective. And then also in relation to your own work, definitely start using it to help you engage with material and also, you know, manage your time, sort of set up your summaries, get your notes in order, things that you could do, maybe like ask, you might have your notes written out, you might ask the large language model to put it into a spreadsheet so that it's all organised for you and you can search it and so put it into a table format that you can then paste into a spreadsheet. There's tons of different ways that you can use it in that context. 
Um, and I think too that in the in Australia we have different ways. So like we have law clinics and different opportunities to engage with real problems and thinking about tech as a way to aid in the use of those problems. I think that law students who understand and the technology understand the limitations and the use cases will have the competitive advantage over students that are agnostic or um, disinterested in the tech. I happen to know that firms and the, the big four consulting firms and the big four law firms are actually sort of getting their grads to mm-hmm. generate use cases for generative oh. AI. They're putting them on think tanks wow. sort of to think about what the potential use cases of using the technology in their firms are. So if you've got that lateral critical and creative problem-solving ability and you understand the tech, you're much more valuable to the firm than someone that can write the perfect letter because, unfortunately, the tool can write the perfect letter now. Absolutely. Yep. It's uh, At the end of the day, it's not about creating robot lawyers. It's about making your lives much less robotic. So Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I love that. Now I'm going to use that as my quote. <laughs> awesome. So, so Liz, this was fascinating. You know, I learned a lot from you. We had a fantastic conversation. But before we wrap this up, where can people reach out to you? I know that LinkedIn is a perfect way, but could you just, yeah. yeah. LinkedIn is sort of my happy place. It's where I go to express myself and post content. And then also you can contact me at liz at lawdesigned.com. My website is lawdesigned.com. Perfect. Thank you once again, Liz, for joining Bite Size Law. It was an amazing conversation. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sid. That was great.